The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we gather here before you singing praise to you and in song cause to think about many of your kindnesses towards us, to think about our sin and our undeserving natures and then of your generous giving heart. That's who you are. We say thank you. We're gathered here now to hear more this morning, to hear more about your good and generous heart. And so my prayer now, Father, is that you would press this truth into us in ways that move us then to joy. There's a lot here that if, if, if any Christian were to to ask, be asked, what, what do you know about God and his giving nature? There's a lot here that we would say yes to, yes, aha, uh-huh, that, aha, uh-huh, yes. But will you, Father, take these things that we know and move us to joy with them this morning? Towards that end, Lord, I'm going to ask you to make my words clear. There are, there are plenty of opportunities for me to stumble over what I say and plenty of opportunities for us to mishear, plenty of opportunities to be distracted, and we have... Lord, foes against us who want us to mishear, to misspeak, and to misunderstand you. So, Lord, intervene, please, and make your word clear and apply it to our hearts and move us to joy. Show us something about you now and about the future that moves us. Teach, train, build up, do good to your people, and honor the name of your Son, we pray. In his name, amen. The United States of America is perhaps the wealthiest country ever to exist. And so the Christian church in America, considered as a whole, may well be the wealthiest regional church ever to exist. Ever. Compared to most others in the world today, let alone across time then, everybody in this room, all of us, we're all rich, wealthy. How many sermons have you heard that says something like that? Something like that? Probably a few. I know I have. In fact, I probably preached a few. It includes something along the lines of, we are wealthy, we live in a rich country, we have untold resources. And that's true, which is why you hear sermons about it, which is why I've spoken about it, which is why it resonates, because we we know it's true. I don't want to dismiss that idea at all, but I do want to say that right there at that point, we probably need to take a little bit of care. 
because usually, I think, the tone of those comments implied, maybe explicit, the tone behind, we are really wealthy. The tone is often one of guilt, implied or explicit. A bit of, we may be the wealthiest church ever to exist. Shame on us. Or, you are rich, and that's wrong. The word rich is almost like a slander, an accusation. You rich person. Look at what you drive and look at where you live. You feel that? It's almost like an accusation. There's, There's an implied guilt in that that often sneaks in when Christians start talking about, let alone preaching about wealth. So we need to take care at this point because that's not always the proper tone. In fact, our passage today at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6 seems to exist because Paul wanted to be careful not to strike that tone, at least not to end on that tone with the church in Ephesus. Necessarily, if you recall, it's been a little while now, but necessarily he'd leaned that way a little bit earlier in verses 5 to 10 when he talked about money. We talked about this probably a month, maybe five weeks ago, because truth be told, there is danger in wealth. He addressed it there. The false teachers in the church in Ephesus had, had fallen into this trap of thinking, desiring to be rich, and, and I want that because wealth promises me life, and I can get what I want, and I can, I can find security for myself, and I can, I can get the good life, and so they're chasing after it. They've been caught, it said, in this destructive cycle that leads in the end to ruin and destruction, and so he necessarily warned them, money is the root of all kinds of evil. Watch out. And then he said in verse 11, flee from that. Flee from that deception. So there's a necessary warning there that's alarming and it's pretty negative. However, after verses 11 to 16, where Paul ends with his exalted praise of of the Lord, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever, amen, he kind of circles back as if to put a little bit better balance on the issue. The one who desires to be rich chases life and wealth. Yep, that's a problem. But being wealthy itself is not. Being rich in itself, that's not guilt-worthy. In fact, it's a purposeful blessing. God has a word for rich people along those lines too. Not one of, of guilt, but one of pointing out the purposeful blessing in the money that God has given you, in your wealth. And that's what we're going to look at today in verses 17 to 19. So let me read it, and then I'm going to draw out a couple of observations that I think help us explore this purposeful blessing that money is. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves 
as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's verses 17 to 19. Here's the first observation. Wealth is given to be enjoyed with God and to strengthen our trust of God. Wealth is given to be enjoyed with God and to strengthen our trust of God. Verse 17 begins with a command to Timothy about what he is supposed to command in the church to those who are rich, those who are rich in the present age. Last week we talked about this passage. If you were here, you recall we we kind of set the context and point out that, that Paul kind of wants to put a chair here and says, I want you to sit here and from this perspective, look at what I'm going to say. From, from this perspective of you live in the present age, but eternity is coming. That, that's the viewpoint from which we look at the commands. In the present age, there are some in the church who are rich. Now, in one sense, this passage does apply to all of us. We, sh- we should all be thinking about how do I deal with the, with the wealth, with the riches that I have, and maybe in America today, we as a collective group have more than most. So this is, in one sense, all of us. But in another sense, within any local church, some of us are more wealthy than some others of us. And the, the tension here is to, to see that as that's not bad. That's not an accusation. And so for some of us, we have to kind of own that and say, that's probably me, because this is a passage that Paul wrote, no stigma, and he's not, he's not attacking this, but he is writing specifically to one subset in the church, maybe that's you, to help you. Because you've got a, a unique responsibility with the riches that God has given you. So all of us, we, got, we can't say, this is about them, because I'm, I'm not rich. We've got to all think about our riches, our wealth, but then some of us might maybe pay a little bit more attention because some things here might be uniquely about you, for you, to help you, not accuse you. Verse 17. Command those in the church who right now are rich not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Two great temptations. The temptation to be proud because... Look how well I have done for myself, all that I earned. Right? Pretty easy to see that. Haughtiness easily sneaks in. And even if in the church, which it usually isn't, even if it's not quite that brazen, it is sometimes still there. Wealth kind of creates a sense of self-confidence. And you kind of feel like something when you're riding around in a nice car and wearing a nice suit and attending a, a nice dinner in a nice restaurant with other people who got there in nice cars or wearing nice suits and dresses. You kind of feel like something, and people kind of defer to you, sir, ma'am. Watch out that that doesn't go to your head. Don't be proud. And don't hope in the uncertainty of riches. Unnecessary warning because when we have money in our hands, we can often feel like we have a handle on everything else too. I have power and I have the ability to control and I can acquire for myself. I can fix the circumstances. But he says that the riches of this world are uncertain. 
Don't set your hope on them. They come and they go, right? Now, those are the two negative warnings here. And I deal with them quickly because it's pretty obvious to us. We can see them. But notice this. Those aren't wrong just because they're wrong. It's not that, you know, pride's a sin, so don't be proud. He puts these two things here because particularly they get in the way of what the wealth is really about, what God's really trying to do when he gives riches to his people. So he gives the negative, but really he wants to move on to the positive, and you've got to remove the negative so that you can see where this is going. There are two real dangers there, but really we need to look at the positive command. You've removed the dangers, you can see, oh. And this, I think, should set us to thinking. Maybe some of us more than others. Me, in particular, this part here, this last bit of verse 17 really gets me. And really makes me like, like, think. And it should, I think, is it thinking, it sets you to worshiping. Because there's a phrase here at the end of verse 17 that repeatedly casts an astonishing vision of God. And maybe a surprising take on the stuff that we have. So don't set your hope on, on riches, but on God. So we're commanded to set our hope on God. And here's the God that we're supposed to hope in. The one who is is an insatiable giver. He is comprehensively generous and good. He looks and he sees and he thinks, humanly speaking, what would be good? What would be good? And then he starts to give it. And then he keeps on giving it and keeps on giving and keeps on giving. He richly provides. He takes that word rich and uses it again. He uses it all throughout, in fact. God's not afraid of being rich. In fact, he says, I'm filthy, stinking rich myself. I got no problem with being rich. Really, I'm abundantly rich. And I give liberally, exceedingly, abundantly, more than you'd ever think about and more than you would expect not prison rations to just sustain you so that you just kind of barely make it along. Feasts. Not enough just to get by, but more than you can imagine. It, it's as if God gets up, and I know this is human speaking, but think about it like this. And I'm going to connect God to fathers. Think about a father like this. As if God gets up in the morning and says, looking at his particular people, it says it gives to us. He's looking at you. God gets up in the morning, looks at his people and says, what would be good to give to them? And then all day long lives to give. And the next morning, the same. He looks at a particular people immersed in particular situations in certain circumstances with an eye to figure out what can it be and then does more than that over and above it, again and again, gives good, richly provides, lavishes on us everything, it says. So, of course, it would be foolish to be haughty because what do you have that you didn't receive? It was all a gift. He gave, richly, everything. Every single thing that you have. 
came from him? Directly given or the circumstances that enabled you to, quote, earn it were given as he gave minds and determination and strength and protection from illness and the market going just the way it did and, and consumer demand being what it was. It's all a gift from God, a good gift. This is the God who richly gives everything and first and foremost, we have to underline here, right, the first best thing he gave us is Christ himself. I wasn't talking about the cars and the houses. I am. But first and foremost, Jesus. First and foremost, Jesus. He gets up in the morning. What do they most need that would secure for them the best, goodest, widest, biggest, deepest? They need Jesus. And so he gave us Christ, who himself, God the Son, gave up everything so as to give to us life. And the new act that we lived out, not faith in the stuff he could put his hands on, but he cast his hope on God and gave it all away and laid down his life for other people, generously giving of his own resources, even of his own life. This is the pinnacle of the generous giving, richly providing God. And then he put us in Christ and gave to Christ everything. And therefore in us, in him, we gave us everything. You just have an abundance. An abundance. So I'm, I'm working through this last phrase here, and I'm, and I'm confronted with a God that I find, maybe you find, I find that somewhere along the line in my Christian life, probably in my pre-Christian life first, snuck in the God who is, I could kind of say like, high and exalted and a ruling king, a sovereign, and I love those words. They are biblical words. They are beautiful. But you see what happens if you twist that too much? What you get is a czar. You get an omnipotent one who has peons, who has little people, the help. And I'm working through this phrase, and, and what confronts us here is a God who is so abundantly, richly giving, on and on and on, never stopping, giving us Christ, but not stopping there, along with him, everything else. This is a God who is generous. And then the next phrase just goes, no way. To be enjoyed. To be enjoyed. I could maybe understand, maybe, if there was something utilitarian in it. Because, you know, that's how Google works, right? You, you put the ping pong table in the front lobby because that makes better workplaces. I've never been to Google, but that's what I understand. They've got, you know, the modern workplace has all these amenities in it so that you can get a better workforce. It's utilitarian in the end. It's really all about the bottom line. I can understand if God was really about that. In some way or another, he gives me all these things because it's going to make a better worker, a better servant. But it literally says, into the enjoyment, that's the end goal. He gave me everything into the enjoyment. 
And that should make you say, like, what kind of God is this? I read once about a story of German soldiers in World War II encountering for the first time American rations and being struck by the chocolate bar. Bread, I get. Water, I get. Meat, I get. Cheese, I get. Ammunition, I get. Chocolate. And the phrase written there was, what kind of a country are we fighting that can afford and would think to and then actually execute a plan to put chocolate bars in every single one of these rations that they're going to ship all around the world? What kind of a country are we fighting? What kind of a God do we serve who gives us everything, Christ and everything else, into our enjoyment? Not just utilitarian, because I want you to enjoy this. That's why I gave it to you. Who richly provides everything to us for our enjoyment. That's surprising to me. Maybe particularly surprising to you if, if the dominant vision of, of God in your mind is one of king and ruler and not also a kingly ruler who is a loving, gracious father. A dad. He gives us everything into enjoyment, which maybe, maybe there's a little bit of pushback here. You think about that and you think, that sounds a little too reckless. I think you probably need to qualify that. Not yet, because he doesn't. It's just there, into the enjoyment. Well, okay, isn't, isn't that going to create some problems? Isn't it going to make people idolaters? Aren't we really just going to get hooked on the cars and the houses and the vacations and, the, and become materialists and greedy and worldly and sinful? And the answer is, yeah, sometimes yes. That's why he gave the warning earlier in the chapter Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Watch out that you don't desire to become rich and chase that. And don't get your hopes hooked on riches. They're fleeting. It's not there, guys. Indeed, for sure, there's problem there. But just because people might and do sin with God's good gift-giving nature doesn't mean that God's going to shrink back from doing that. In fact, he can't. It's his nature. This is who he is. He's a God who is gracious. He's generous and good and loving. And his nature is such that he gives. He's the one who puts it on a table and says, pick it up and taste and see. I, the Lord, am good. I made that and I gave it to you and I told you to eat it. Marvelous isn't it, comma. Marvelous aren't I. What kind of God is he who would give that to me, to you? He's the God who is, and who is particularly, thoughtfully, deliberately gracious and loving and gives everything to you to enjoy, not instead of him, but along with him in thanksgiving, realizing that's my father. 
That's my dad. Doesn't the heart of every dad love when you lay out a gift that your kid thought, no way, no way, no way, and then says, oh, and is thrilled with it, enjoys it? Every dad, every dad thrills at that. Every parent thrills at that. And then you are, you yourself are, sometimes you think like, well, you don't know the half of it because you don't know what else there is. That's God with us. I want you to enjoy it, but you don't know the half of it because there's more to come. And I don't want you to enjoy that instead of me. I want you to enjoy that with me, and I want you in that to see me. This shows off who God is, and, and it becomes, as we see him like this, becomes more attractive and more enjoyable and more worship-worthy, more the object of our thanksgiving. He gave that, and surely he will give more than that. Indeed. So don't, don't be haughty. Don't set your hope on riches. But see, this is the Lord. What do you do with that then? Well, hope in him. Obviously. And to help hope in him, get in your nice car and drive it. And look at it. And, and run your hand over the leather and feel the leather and look at the lines. And feel how smoothly it runs down the highway and notice the beauty and the precision of it and the ease of travel. All of that given to me by him to enjoy, and to get me to the grocery store, but to enjoy. Thank you. And if your car's a junker, you don't have one, pick something else. You do have something else. You've got some relationship some skill, some good, some blessing. He's speaking to the rich in the church specifically. So some of us have more blessings than others. Yeah, but all of us have something. And you got to get into that and notice it and look at it and to realize, oh, this is beautiful, this is marvelous, this is sweet, this is good, and you gave this to me, not instead of you, but with you. I'm going to say thank you, and I'm going to enjoy it as an act of worship and thanksgiving. <sighs> thank you. That's fuel for strong hope in him. He's that kind of a God who would give that. And that's fuel for worship of him. And it's fuel for sacrifice for him, like him, which gets to the second observation. The second one's going to push us in a way that probably you predict a little bit more. But don't let that eliminate the first one. Verse 18 does not negate verse 17. Let yourself believe it. God, your Father, richly gives you everything to enjoy. And 
the second point. Wealth is given to make us generous now and rich forever. Wealth is given to make us generous now and rich forever. So it's given to be enjoyed with God and to grow our trust in him, and it's given to make us generous now and rich forever. There's more that Timothy is supposed to command the church, particularly those who are wealthy. But it shifts here in 18 a little bit, you might say, from how you're supposed to think to what you're supposed to do. And verse 19, a little bit of why, some motivation. We're going to start with the call to action. Verse 18, there are four phrases in two pairs. Timothy, command the rich to do good, to be rich in good works. That's the first pair. And second pair, to be generous, ready to share. Command the rich to be about the doing of good. Remind them they don't actually want to be only rich in cash. They want to be rich. Being rich is good. They want to be rich in good works. That's true wealth. Remind them of that. Which is actually saying something pretty ordinary, something that's true for all Christians. So why does he remind the wealthy of that? Well, maybe there's something to think about there. Saying something to the wealthy that is along the lines of don't forget the bread and butter of your Christian Christ-like life. See, people with resources tend to find opportunities to fill up their lives with things that require resources. Tend to have the opportunity to bring into their lives mental distractions and even physical distractions. It costs money to have season tickets to the jazz or the symphony. It costs money to travel have a second home somewhere else, and so on. And and all of that, I'm going to underline again, verse 17, gift from God to be enjoyed, thank you, for sure. We also have to add, and all of that takes time and mental energy, for sure. So Timothy, remind the wealthy in the church to not just be rich in resources and rich in experiences and enjoyable gifts from God and consumed in the process and in the time commitment of enjoying all of God's gifts. Because that'd be easy to do. Remind them of the bread and butter. They really do want to be rich. They really want to spend time around other people, around their church family, around their neighbors, around situations of need, and to be practicing and actually filled up with good works. A life that's rich in them is, is a, a really wealthy life. We're going to see why in the second verse 19. So do rich. Do rich good works. Be rich. And second, be generous, ready to share. Again, something that applies to all of us, but it's particularly true for those who have a lot to share. You've been given much. We all have, some more than others. And as you think through, I don't have more because I deserve more. And I don't have more because I myself created or earned more. 
I have more, it just said, because I was given more. And the next thing on your mind should be, why? Why was I given more? We'll never know every answer to that question. But here's an answer. So that I have the capacity and the responsibility to meet more needs. We've all been given so as to give. We've been blessed so as to be blessings. If I've been blessed more, I bet that's so I can be more of a blessing. Ready to share. The English behind that phrase, ready to share, the English phrase there, it comes from a word that's pretty familiar in Christian circles. It's the word behind koinonia. We use that here in our church often. The word for fellowship or shared community. So the person who he's talking to here is, is, is generous, ready to share, standing in the church community deeply with, in, and is watching, kind of like, I've been given an extra thousand dollars this month, maybe even extra thousand dollars every month. I've been given an extra thousand dollars. Why? I knew a guy who was, um, and now he owns a, a business who is an, um, largely an a investment business, and commissions would come to him from different work that he did, and he told us one time that he had become He'd seen this so many times he'd become used to. When some inordinately large commission came in, his first question was, for what? Because he was just sure that the next day's mail or the, that afternoon's phone messages were going to bring some opportunity to give it. And he was, he was habituated now, ready for it. What I'm saying here is the generous person who's thinking this, eager to share is saying, I've been given, Why? For what? Eager to share. Now, it may be that the extra $1,000 is in your paycheck so that you can enjoy it somehow. Verse 17 is still true. Yes and amen. Great. But you really want to be rich in good works, generous, eager to share. Verse 19 is going to tell you why. If you're a wealthy Christian... Notice something right there about yourself. And I find this, again, there are a couple things in this passage, this is the second one, that, that just kind of make me think, ha, ah, that's really interesting. If you're a wealthy Christian, you've been given that, so to speak, that extra $1,000, what are you supposed to do with it? Notice what God's doing with you in your life. He does different things in all of our lives. We, we all are different people. He's, he's at work in lots of ways for all of us, and, and we can never say completely what he's doing with, with any of us at any given moment, but here's something that he's doing with you. If he has given to you an additional bit of wealth, he's put you in a position to be in a different and unique way more like him the generous giver. Put it differently. His giving to you directly for your enjoyment of things is his love to you, like a good father to you. And also, then you look at verse 18, you realize, oh, 
And what he's also done is he's going to love others through me. So it's his love to me directly, and it's his love to others through me. It's, it's his indirect love to me, too. He's invited me into the family business in a unique way. Come here, son. Come here, daughter. Let me show you what it's like to be a generous giver who blesses and meets people's needs. That's the call on all Christians and on the wealthy uniquely so. A privilege. I know sometimes... I've heard this from some folks who have some larger amount of resources. It can sometimes feel like everybody comes up to you with kind of like hand open. Maybe, yeah. Put a different take on that and say, God actually invited you into the family business in a little different way said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to others through you. I'm going to use you, and I'm going to show you what it's like to stand in my shoes and to be a generous giver. The part that gets unique for me is, well, why not just spread all the money out evenly, God? I mean, you could do it that way. Why not? Why give me three and give him one when we both need two? could. Sometimes he does. But doesn't this way do something different for all of us? It invites you into the family business and shows you something unique about God's heart and actually matures you as you learn to hope in him and take your fingers off of the things he gave you and give them away after in faith saying, Lord, what should I do? How much? For whom? When? There's a great burden in dealing with wealth. Stewarding money is hard. But it's how he'll mature you and how he'll grow you. It's how he's working in your life. And it's how he's working in other people's lives too. Growing faith in them as they cry out, Lord, I need help. And it's given in a way different than when it comes in my paycheck. Grows faith in other people too. To give disproportionately and then say, you be generous, eager to share. I find that to be a very fascinating way that God builds maturity in his people and faith all across the board. And you, if you're wealthy, you get to stand in a kind of a unique spot in that. It's a great blessing to you and a responsibility. Be generous and eager to share. Rich in good works, like God is. And you really want to do that because of verse 19. Verse 19 is where Paul's chair comes back and the future perspective pops up. You want to live a life rich in good works and full of generosity not just because it's the good thing to do and because it helps people now, but because of verse 19. And the language here might be a little bit confusing, but he's still using investment language, actually. The language of storing up treasure as a foundation is, is like, we, we might say, building a nest egg. 
You gather up something and you, 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 you hoard it, you, you pile it up, and then you can sit on it secure. Or you, you lay it out as a foundation flat and strong, and then you can build on it, you can stand on it secure. Same, diff, different way of saying the same thing. He's talking about gathering together something now that pays off in the future. This is your best investment. To be rich in good works and generous now lays up for you treasure in the future. And notice the language. It's not just another command. It's intimately connected. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves. This is how you store up the treasure. He put you in a spot and gave you wealth and resources and said, and now you have to use them. So in other words, you cannot say, I'm going to do verse 17, I'm going to skip verse 18, but I'm going to serve on the elder board and I'm going to witness to my neighbors and I'm going to pray a lot. Well, were you generous with what he gave you? Thus, storing up treasure in heaven. It's been given to be given. But that's not taking from you. It's investment. Storing up treasure for the future, a nest egg, grasping hold then of the life that is truly life. He reminds us here again at the end, we're, we're, so, we're so habitually tempted, it's, it's in us in some deep way, to seek life in the stuff we can lay our hands on and, and to look just at the here and now, to live in the present age and to set our hope on these riches here and what we can get and how those good experiences and we can enjoy them in the absence of God, forgetting the future is coming and eternity lasts a long time. And he says, no, remind them again, I want you to enjoy what you have here, but I want you to live with it here in light of then. Christian, get really, really, really wealthy. Forever. What, what, what's that mean? What's he talking about? Well, he never fleshes out all the details of that. He just says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He doesn't want you to miss out on that which is truly life. Life in the kingdom and fellowship with him. So here at the end, there, there's this offer made that it's all throughout the book, it's all throughout the Bible. What you really want, what you really want is intimate, lasting communion with God. The smile of his favor forever that says, well done, good and faithful servant. And for some of us, uniquely, and all of us in some way, God says, here's how you get that. You enjoy what I've given you now with me. And you give it away for me independence on me banking on the fact that I'm going to give it back to you in the future it's always future oriented always future oriented we're invited 
Maybe you know the quote. We're invited to do what martyred missionary Jim Elliott talked about, talking about all of his life. We're invited to do with our resources what he set up as the best investment ever. You know the quote. He said, we're called to give away what we can't keep to gain what we can't lose. In this present age, Christian, give. Be generous like your father is. And store up for yourself treasure in heaven that that will make you eternally rich and deliver to you fellowship with this God forever. That's a great offer. Take him up on it. Let me pray. Lord, we have a tension here that's hard for us to balance out. How do we let ourselves go and really enjoy and yet give away sacrificially? That's hard for us. So, Father, will you give your spirit to us in power and and cause vision of you to rise up over all of that and win our hearts to yourself? Help us, please. Help us to deal well with the resources that you've given us and use us as a blessing so that the world can understand something about your good, generous, gracious nature as it interacts with us. Make us more like you. What I'm thankful for many, many, many ways, many, many, many people in this church that, that already pursue you in these ways, thank you. Thank you for showing them to me and using them to inspire me. So grow us still more, please, Father. And do that so that we can enjoy treasure forever. That's what we really want. So help us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.